Well, this is Pentecost Sunday, and it's an exciting time where the church looks in the rearview mirror and celebrates this incredible event 2,000 years ago where God, through the Son, poured out the Holy Spirit on all flesh. This morning, uh, my son Peter is going to preach the Pentecost Sunday message. He's been a part of City Church for many, many years. In fact, what, almost 19 of his 22 years, he's been a part of City. But uh, he's going to be exiting Charlottesville. This is the last Sunday that he'll be with us. And so I'm just going to ask Peter if you'd come on out here and join me. Come on out here. Let's give Peter a hand as he comes. And before you get into your sermon, if you could share a little bit about what you're going to be doing next over the next four years. Sure, Dad. Um, I am going to do this because it's going to drive me nuts otherwise. There you go. Um, I will be doing, uh, I'm, well, I'm going to run around for the summer like a vagabond, which I am, in kind of various odd jobs in various places. So that'll be fun in Seattle and North Carolina, South Carolina, Virginia Beach. And then I'll be going over to the UK, to England, for my first master's. And then I'll be coming back to the States, which is one year. And then I'll come back to the States for my second master's, which will be three years. And then I'll get a job. <laughs> or something like it. So uh, at the end of that point in time, I will have gone to seminary and done one more academic degree. And that's kind of the next four years of my life. So we'll see how that goes. And if any of that changes, I'll let you know. Because I'll probably be back in my parents' basement. Um, well, this being Pentecost Sunday and my last Sunday here, uh, why don't we read the Pentecost story together, and then I'll say goodbye. So if you have one of these blue NIV Bibles, it's page 883. It goes like this. When the day of, this is going to be a long bit, but it's a liturgical Sunday, so we've got to hear it all. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound, like the blowing of a violent wind, came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. When they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were... Uh, now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, all aren't these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some of them, however, made fun of them and said they've had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only 9 a.m., no, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above 
and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing to him on the cross. Oops. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him this, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken, therefore my heart is glad." and my tongue rejoices, my body will also rest in hope, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with your joy and your presence. All right, seventh inning stretch. Here we go. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised on him, him on an oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted this message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. I was born July 29, 1994, in Princeton, New Jersey. My mother comes from a large Italian family in New Jersey, which is to say more or less a country all by itself. My dad is from Wisconsin and eventually ended up a chaplain at Princeton University, having not known enough to know that he should be afraid of Princeton undergrads, which nobody really should. They went to seminary, they got married, they had me. And in 1997, my dad heard that there was this little church down in Charlottesville that needed a pastor. And so they came down to visit, and as I was asleep in the car, and both of them were talking with each other, driving out of 1010 East Ryle Road, which is now City Church Central, each looked at the other and confirmed that God had called them to come and take what was then this small Appalachian church in something of a family feud. And so they left. They left the foreign country of the Pachonis. They left the Princeton that my dad had never been in before anyway. And they came here, and they brought this kind of wide-eyed, talkative, socially maladjusted three-year-old son with them. And that's how I came to be here. And I have been here ever since. I wanted to go to the UK for high school. My dad said I couldn't lose my fishing buddy. I wanted to go anywhere but UVA for college, but I wasn't good enough to get back into Princeton. I wanted to go to Scotland for this last year, but instead I've had to stay here and take care of my parents. I've tried to get out of here <laughs> for years. They're going to bury me over on McCormick Road. 
the first sermon I ever preached here, Larry and Marilyn Burris, who are my fake grandparents, will remember this, they and only them, was in the sanctuary at what is now City Church Central, and it was on Barney and Moses. And I stood up and took the stage and said, now, about Barney. And it's kind of held forth for about half an hour, and no one's been able to shut me up since then. I used to keep candy underneath the stage over at City Church Central. We would play Bible baseball where each of the bases was a Bible and the bat was a Bible and the ball was a ball. And, we'd, and then we'd just stomp on Bibles. All of us. I mean, it's just, I was the consummate terrorizing pastor's kid. I used to steal the Xboxes. I'm just going to confess everything. Steal the Xboxes, take them home, play with them, bring them back. I mean, this church has kind of like raised and grown me. And usually people ask, what's it like to be a pastor's kid? My usual response is, not as bad as you'd think could be a lot worse. I've been at this church for a very long time, and I think it's probably about time to go. Probably. I believe in a God who believes in interesting stories, and I'm relatively confident the next step of my interesting story is about to take place. The title of the sermon series, There and Back Again, was something that I'll admit I cooked up, and I cooked it up from The Hobbit. Now, we haven't talked about this explicitly thus far, but I would like to share with you where this comes from. My dad goes, why don't we do a sermon series on the Old Testament? And I said, nobody likes the Old Testament, but they should. So we need to bill the Old Testament as interesting. Why don't we bill it as what it is, as an adventure, as reading it? So I turn to The Hobbit, where it says this on page four, right out of the gate, Gandalf the wizard, who is my role model? comes to Bilbo Baggins, who we all know and love, and says this, very pretty, said Gandalf. I should try and do this like um, Ian McKellen, but I'm not that good. But I have no time to blow smoke rings this morning. They're smoking pipes together, but I'm sure they're still Christians. Anyway, I'm looking for someone to share in an adventure that I'm arranging, and it's very difficult to find anybody. I should think so in these parts. We are plain quiet folk and have no use for adventures, nasty, disturbing, uncomfortable things. Make you late for dinner. I can't think, of, I can't think what anybody sees in them, said our Mr. Baggins. Did I skip that? Oh, yeah. Oh, no, that's a different poem. That'll come later. Then uh, Gandalf, <laughs> Gandalf did not move. He stood leaning on his stick and gazing at the hobbit without saying anything till Bilbo got quite uncomfortable and even a little cross. Good morning, Bilbo said at last. We don't want any adventures here, think, thank you. You might try over the hill or across the water. By this he meant that the conversation was at an end. But of course, the little dwarves and the wizard badger him into going on an adventure. Thank God, because then that huge franchise, nobody would have made any money off it. They turned this into three movies. We would be three movies short if Bilbo had won in this debate. And at the end of the book, on the very last page, it says this. One evening, one autumn evening, some years afterwards, Bilbo was sitting back in his study writing his memoirs. He thought of calling his memoirs there and back again, a hobbit's holiday, when there was a ring at the door and it was Gandalf and a dwarf. There's that story where you go on an adventure and you change, and then you come home. We all want Bilbo to go on the adventure and change and come home, because then we get to hear it too. I am a Christian because I believe that God answers the deep, universal, existential cries of the human heart. 
And the moments I almost stopped being a Christian were the moments when I almost stopped believing that that was true. There have been 107 billion homo sapiens in human history, and we have populated every corner of the earth. There are seven churches in Antarctica. Did you know that? I mean, like, we eat whale blubber. What can't we do? We're the most fascinating, diverse, complex race in human history, but there are some things about us that are universal. There are some things that every human ever in China and in Africa and in Great Britain have all felt rumble in their hearts, I believe. Now, I could be wrong because I haven't met them all, but I have noticed, I studied classics in college, ancient literature, and I noticed that there are some things that are common to all these cultures. There's these stories and mythologies and philosophies and pieces of advice that you can find in Confucius, or you can find them in Lucretius, or you can find them in Hannibal. I mean, they're all over the place. There's something deeply universal to being human, and I really do believe that Jesus has something to say to it. I want to submit to you this morning that the particularly lengthy story we just read in Acts 2, the story of Pentecost, is the story of God answering the deep, universal, existential cries of the human heart. Now, that can be a little hard to see because it is kind of crazy. I mean, Acts 2 looks a bit like a fraternity party. They're all jammed into this room, and then the beat drops, and then there's like smoke and flashing lights, and everybody's speaking in tongues, and the spirits been poured out on all flesh. So it looks, and then it, you know, spills out onto the street, and then the cops of Jerusalem come by, and they tell everybody to go home, you're drunk. And then Peter gives a sermon, right? Um, so it can be a little hard, I think, to see what's going on in this story, because it does look nuts, but I would like to give it a little theological framing and then just share a couple thoughts that have been meaningful to me as I've looked forward to leaving Charlottesville for the first time and maybe not being able to survive outside of the fishbowl. We'll find out. So in the first verse of chapter 2, it reads like this. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Now, to an ancient Jew, that would sound a little different. To an ancient Jew, it would sound like this. Uh, uh, when we were celebrating the law on the holiday of Shuvot, the Holy Spirit showed up. I, I don't know if people know this, but Pentecost is actually a Jewish holiday. It's a Jewish holiday celebrated 50 days. Penta means 50 in Greek. And Greek-speaking Jews renamed it Pentecost, 50 days. It's a holiday that takes place 50 days after the holiday of Passover, and it celebrates the giving of the law. So God brought the Israelites out of Egypt. He takes them into the desert. God gives them the law on Mount Sinai. And similarly, in the Jewish year, Passover celebrates leaving Egypt. Those 50 days, I guess, are the desert. And then Pentecost, or Shuvot in Hebrew, is the celebration of the law on Mount Sinai. My devout Jewish friends, even to this day, stay, you stay up all night on Shuvot, and you fatigue yourself, and you read the scriptures in the hope that in that weird space, that God will reveal to you something about the Torah that you did not know before. That's the practice of Shuvot. Well, it turns out, on the day when all the disciples who are all Jews, are packed into this one room in Jerusalem um, when they're expecting to celebrate the giving of the law, the Holy Spirit shows up. Now, it seems to me that a thinking ancient Jew in the first century that sees this would start to put the dots together, that here, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, is replacing the law. And if you read the account of the law giving, which is Exodus 19 to 33, you would notice some creepy similarities 
between the day of Pentecost and the giving of the law. For instance, there's thunder, there's the sound of a mighty rushing wind, and there's lightning, there's tongues of fire. So the upper room is meant to look like Mount Sinai when God's presence comes on it with the cloud and the smoke and the lightning and the fire and the thunder. And, the... and you'd also note that 3,000 people die because Moses comes back off the mountain, finds them having made the golden calf, and then just goes all JV football coach crazy and kills 3,000 of them with the Levites. You'd also notice that here, 3,000 people repent, baptize, and are saved. It's meant to be the replacing of the law. It's on the day in which we were supposed to celebrate the richness of God's law for the Jewish people. That's the day that the Holy Spirit shows up and makes a little theological bait and switch. Now, some of you who are good theologians are probably thinking, but isn't it Jesus who fulfills the law? Isn't it Jesus who gets rid of the law? I would simply like to suggest this thought that, yeah, Jesus gets rid of the law, but you've still got to figure out how you're going to make decisions like tomorrow and the day after that. Like, how are you going to figure out where to go in life? The law was the thing that guided the Jewish people in their identity as God's people, and it told them how to till their fields and what clothes to wear and what clothes not to wear and how to talk to people, who to marry, who not to marry. Well, you still have to make all of these decisions, even if the law is gone, so how are you going to do it if you're a follower of Jesus? And I would like to submit to you that the answer is by reliance on the Holy Spirit. And that's why the Spirit shows up on the day of Pentecost to say everything the law did to distinguish our identity as God's people, to help us get on in the world, to help us make decisions and organize a community. That's what the Holy Spirit is now going to do that Christ has fulfilled and gotten rid of the law. Now the Spirit's going to show up and turn us into the kind of people that Christ would want us to be. And that's the bait and switch in which God begins to answer the deepest cries of the human heart. God the Son is raised from the dead, set at the right hand of the Father. The Father passes to him the Spirit. He passes the Spirit to us. And that's the moment when God starts to answer these deep, existential, universal cries of the human heart. Notice that every nation under God is there in Jerusalem on this day. There are Medes and Parthians and Elamites. And I think that means that whether you're black or white or Democrat or Republican or you're a Southerner or you're a Northerner, you're East Coast, you're from the left coast, whatever it is, you can show up on this day in Jerusalem. You can meet the Spirit, and the Spirit's going to be able to speak to you as the Spirit will speak to your neighbors. If, you, if we took the time to go through this list of nations here, there are classic historical wars being revisited. So um, just as an example, um, Parthians, Medes, and Elamites. Um, the Medes are the Persians. This is the great war in Greek history. Parthians are Greek. So right there, the Holy Spirit starts to resolve this ancient conflict between Persia and Greece that sent Western history into this huge tailspin. There's loads to see here. You can do it on your own time. Anyway, all that to say that God shows up to this group of people representative of the whole world and all of its dysfunction and brokenness and national conflict, and God starts to answer them. Now, I'm looking forward to leaving Charlottesville again for the first time in like forever. And so what's 
what's on my mind has definitely colored what I've seen here, but here are three deep existential human needs that I think the Holy Spirit answers in this text. One is the desire for intimacy with the divine. The second is the thirst for adventure. And the third is the longing for home. The first is intimacy with the divine. The second is the thirst for adventure. And the third is the longing for home. Every culture that I at least have ever encountered in my classical education has had stories about the days when the gods walked among us, when you could marry the gods, when you could talk to the gods, Zeus and Hera and um, Hercules, and we have these stories. Humanity has this memory of a time when God could talk to us even more comfortably than I'm talking to you now. I, you know, we all have that question that we ask when we want to make the conversation about Jesus now. And um, when I was a senior in high school, during my senior year beach week, there were 30 of us in two houses, all cards on the table. We had brought 30 cases of beer and 30 handles of liquor. We were not the most responsible children. I, at this point in my time, was really getting serious about my faith, so I abstained from these substances, but I was still victim to them in many, many ways. And one night, I had made pancakes so that everybody else would go to bed, so I fed all the drunk people and put them into their beds, and I sat in the hot tub to have some Peter time. Because <laughs> I felt, after about eight hours of screaming and music and the sound of a mighty rushing wind and flashing lights, that I deserved to chill out. So I go to the hot tub, and I'm sitting there, and there's a girl in my class, we'll call her Anne, because that was her name, <laughs> walks out onto the porch, because evidently she wants some Anne time, and we're in the hot tub together, she's over there, I'm over here, <laughs> sitting in the hot tub together, and she just starts sharing some of the struggles she's had this year, she's wrestled with suicide, she's wrestled with self-harm, she kind of hates herself, she... And I just asked her, do you feel far from God? And she said, yeah. I mean, like, without thinking about it. Do you feel far from God? Yeah. I mean, if I said, do you think Jesus is your personal Lord and Savior, the Son of God who came for the salvation of all mankind, she'd probably go, eh, I think we're going to go back inside. But if you ask somebody, do you feel far from God? Evidently, they don't even have to think about it. About three quarters of a mile farther down the Outer Banks, Two years later, I was in another hot tub with my friend Colin, and we were talking about his first year of college and how it was going, and talking about all the kind of crazy fun he's had, maybe this wasn't the best idea, and I just kind of, do you feel far from God? And he took the cigar out of his mouth, and he held it over the side of the hot tub, and he said, yeah, I really do. We have this innate desire to be close to God, given the option wouldn't you like to meet the most interesting person ever, God? If you're here this morning and you feel far from God, I'm just going to ask you to be honest about that with yourself. And then tell somebody before you leave. If you feel far from God, just tell, you can tell me, I don't care, I'll be there for you. But if you feel far from God, just be honest about it and tell somebody. And then that's the moment when the Spirit is poured out on all flesh. God is so close to these 11 disciples, he's like in their mouth. I mean, these are people that walked with Jesus for three years, and now God is actually poured inside of them, the third person of the Trinity that's been passed from the Father to the Son to us, brings the whole Trinity on the backswing. And now, because of him, 
because the Spirit has replaced the law, we can have God intimately close to us. It's better than having Jesus, and I know that sounds slightly heretical, but think about it. If Jesus is here and he's only in one place, then while I'm getting close to Jesus, you've got to wait in line until he's done with me and my problems, and then he can talk to you. But if the Holy Spirit is God's presence in the world, then you can be over there and I can be over here, and both of us can get, be getting close to the same Jesus, even though bodily he's not present. The Holy Spirit facilitates the deep human need for intimacy with the divine. The second one is the thirst for adventure. Now, I was, so my friend Ashley Callback is surprisingly here this morning. Good to see you, Chica. And um, we were sitting together in Alderman Library in my second year, and I made this joke, which wasn't funny, but whatever. I said, you know, the disciples never get it till Jesus is gone. And then before she even got a chance to chuckle, I ran out of Alderman and called my dad and narrated what two years later would become my entire thesis. I wrote my th undergraduate thesis on the Holy Spirit. I don't know how I missed this for like 20 years, but have you ever noticed that people who walk with Jesus are still a flop until they get the Holy Spirit? It's not until Jesus is gone that St. Peter becomes St. Peter. Before that, he's just that babbling idiot that nobody can get to be quiet, which I identify with, and I'm honest about that, right? <laughs> it's not until the Holy Spirit shows up that these 11 backwater Galilean disciples become world changers. They become world travelers. Um, oftentimes in my life, people reminded me that the 12 disciples all died for their faith. And I think this was supposed to motivate me to die for my faith too. But nobody ever mentioned that none of them died in their hometowns. Thomas dies in India, they die in Egypt, they die in Mauritania, they, two of them die in Rome. I mean, these are people who got the Holy Spirit and went outwards. Jesus says to them in the Great Commission at the end of Luke, go and make disciples of all nations. Now, interestingly enough in Greek, go is not a command. More accurately translated in the Greek, it says, as you go, make disciples. It's assumed that people who follow Jesus with the Spirit are on the move. The Holy Spirit is the thing that takes the truth of Jesus, puts, engine in our puts the gas in our engine, and sends us off into the world. The Holy Spirit is the driving force behind the adventures that I think innately humanity wants to have. The oldest texts we have in human history are epics. They're Odysseus and they're Aeneid, they're the Kalevala and the Shahnameh. They're these old texts that take nine hours to sing out loud, and it's a real pain to translate them, but thank God somebody's done it for us. And they tell the stories of one man or one woman or a group of guys on a boat or a guy on a horse or a couple horses together, and they go off into the wilderness and they change something and they come back changed. Adventure is deep, deep in the human psyche, and every culture on earth has a story about someone long ago who walked with the gods who went on an adventure and then came home changed. Because at the end of the Aeneid, Aeneas founds Rome. At the end of the Odyssey, Odysseus goes back to Penelope, his wife, who he's been away from forever. At the end of The Hobbit, Bilbo goes back to the Shire. At the end of the adventure, we all want to know that we're going to be able to go home. One of the things that you'll notice in the second chapter of Acts and elsewhere in the New Testament is that the early Christians recognized that the Spirit being poured out on all flesh was a sign that one day all people would be in a new heavenly city with God. When I was in high school, I studied in the UK for a couple months and I started to get really homesick. So I started listening to Garrison Keillor's news from Lake Wobegon. 
which are those fictional stories about that town that doesn't exist in Lake Wobegon, Minnesota. It's not the end of the world, but you can see it from there where all the women are strong and all the men are good looking and all the children are above average, right? And for those 10 or 15 minutes, I just felt like an American in a place that didn't salt its butter and that served drinks warm, where you couldn't find peanut butter to save your life or a good burger in all of London. If I listened 10 or 15 minutes to Garrison Keillor, I felt for a second like I was home. It just facilitated this longing for home. I think all of us want to know that at the end of the journey, home will be there. In order for it to be an adventure, there's got to be some risk, right? But we also all want to know that we're going somewhere. The presence of the Spirit is God's promise to us that at the end of the adventure, we will in fact go home. C.S. Lewis notes, I'm not C.S. Lewis's biggest fan all the time, some people are. But one of the things I think Lewis really put his finger on was this thought that most of us go around the world dissatisfied with what we've got, with earthly pleasures and affections and desires, and yet somehow they point to us to another place where those pleasures and affections and desires are fulfilled. He said it like this, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that country, or as I would say, home, and to help others do the same. Jesus says, in my Father's house there are many rooms. If, we're, if it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and welcome you into my presence so that where you are, I will be also. At the end of the book, in Revelation 21 and 22, God dwells in the city. There's no need for the sun or the lamp anymore because God's face lights the whole thing. It's home. It's the home that I at least believe every human longs for, that at the end of the adventure, we'll be able to go home. I'm about to leave what's been home for 20 years, the places where I have caused mischief and been brilliantly stupid, the places where I've been educated. Most of my friends were here. Most of my crushes are here. My first kiss is like 3.1 miles that way. And I want to know that when I leave, that I'll still be able to go home, capital H. The intimacy with the divine, thirst for adventure, longing for home, all of those find their place when the Holy Spirit shows up. If you want to get in touch with the deep human, universal, existential needs that I believe you carry with you, and if better yet, you'd like to see them met, why don't you try the Spirit? And why don't you try it through faith in Jesus? As the worship team comes up, I would just like to pray us out, to say goodbye one last time, and then to go beat the Methodists to lunch. So would you stand and pray with me? Jesus, you are God, 
And thankfully, I am not. Jesus, I'm glad that by your Spirit, you can be present to me now, here in Charlottesville, that you can be present to me in a year in the UK, that you can be present to me in another year in New Jersey, and the year after that, and the year after that, you'll still be able to be close to me. Holy Spirit, I am constantly surprised at the way in which you seem to be able to give me what I need, even when I'm not quite sure what that is myself. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd come in this place right now more tangibly than you have been before. Spirit, I pray that as we bring our needs to you in worship, as they come to mind, that you would meet them by your healing and intimate and adventuresome and homely presence, that you'd just meet us here. Spirit, I pray over this church, as I move on, that you would continue to be faithful to it as it's faithful to you, that every individual here would find the resurrected life of Christ because they have gathered together to worship your name and to be your people. Thank you, God, for all you do. Just continue to journey with us, if you would, until we're with you face to face, no tears, no suffering, no space between us in that final city with Jesus and the Father and the Spirit at the center. Be with us today and tomorrow and all the days after that. In the precious name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Stay cool, guys.
Take a moment to rest in God's presence. A disciple by the name of John, who was present on the day of Pentecost, was caught up in the Spirit on the Lord's Day in Revelation chapter 21. That same Holy Spirit that was poured out on the day of Pentecost opened up the eyes of his spirit that he could see what God would do into the future. Peter referenced this in his message about home. Here's what John writes. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things God knows that we have a longing for home. We all have that. And this morning, that Holy Spirit that satisfies that cry paints a picture through the Apostle John for us that there will come a day when God will dwell with His people and He with them, and there will be no more suffering, no more pain, no more heartache, and no more dysfunction. Home will be as God always intended that it would be. If you are here this morning and you know that you need home, I'm going to invite you to open up your heart to Jesus in this moment. That you would open up your heart to the moving of the Holy Spirit. Because through Christ, God provides for us the guarantee and the promise 
of an eternal home that is the place that God always intended for you and for me. I want to encourage you to open your heart to Christ. Are you sure that you will be heading home? If you would like that assurity, and you sense the Holy Spirit, that Spirit that was poured out on Pentecost, is drawing you towards Jesus the same way He did to 3,000 people on the day of Pentecost. I'm going to ask that you would pray this prayer of faith with me, that you would open your heart to Jesus and have that assurance of hope. A prayer would go something like this, Dear Jesus, I don't know everything that there is to know about who you are, but I sense the Holy Spirit is drawing me in this moment to say yes to you. So Jesus, I accept you and your work on the cross for me. I say yes to you. And I open up my heart, I open up my life, I open up my mind. And in doing so, I commit to following you all the days of my life. And as the sermon on Pentecost calls me, I repent of my sin, and I ask that you would forgive me, that you would cleanse me, and that you would prepare me in this moment for an eternal relationship with God the Father. Jesus, thank you for what you have done for me. Thank you for what you have done for everyone in this room. And now I accept it by faith through the name of Jesus. Amen and amen. If you have prayed that prayer at any point in your life, you have a guarantee, you have a promise of home. You have the promise by the Spirit of God for home. I want us to do something that's a little bit different as we close out our time. I want you, along with me, to give thanks to God the Father, give thanks to Christ the Son, and give thanks to the Holy Spirit that we have an eternal home that is guaranteed to us through the present working of the Holy Spirit. Can we give God a clap offering for that promise this morning? If you would like prayer at the conclusion of the service, our prayer team will be up front to pray with you. If you would like to stay in worship, I invite you to do that. And now may the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord's face shine upon you. May the Holy Spirit dwell richly within you. And may He give you peace. Let's worship the Lord as we exit.